Welcome to Political OD, episode 32. It's been a few weeks, actually, uh, maybe a longer gap than usual, since early February, I think was our last one on, wasn't it? Um, yes. When we looked at um, various bits, and partly with the election, I guess, starting earlier this week, once the Assembly closed, uh, we left it to now to be able to take a look at what has uh, particularly moved in the past few uh, couple of months, and also then uh, looking forward at the election, though not in too much detail. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to maybe what what comes after the election or maybe just before the election. Leave the fun stuff for later. Um, so uh, the past few weeks, I, I guess, again, uh, once again, on the protocol, uh, nothing much has happened. Uh, it's the can still being kicked down the road. Uh, I think that's a fair statement of where we are at, isn't it? Yes, we had a bit of a discussion about whether the Secretary of... Uh, whether uh, the Prime Minister, rather, could trigger Article 16 in light of the war in Ukraine. And there seemed to be, um, you know, a bit of a furore about that. And, and Liz Truss kind of indicated uh, initially that, that we couldn't. And then she said, maybe we would. And, you know, as we all yeah. sort of anticipated, nothing happened. And then anyway. the, the, Treasury, the Treasury decided to put through some savings that basically took Northern Ireland out of the customs market. At which point Liz Truss came in and said, you can't do that. It was all churned out. But um, you just get the feeling that they, they're not really on top of it generally. It's going nowhere. The grace periods are sort of just allowing it to exist in some sort of limbo. At the same time, there is harm being done because Brandon Lewis, Secretary of State sitting in front of the House of Commons Committee uh, just this past week, was quite clear at the scale of harm and the level of harm that's, that is occurring because of the protocol. And the one question I had just in my mind after that was, how long are you prepared to allow that harm to continue? Yeah, we know how bad it is, but yeah, we're not going to do anything. Well, I think the answer to that is that they're allowed to, uh, or they're prepared to allow the harm to go on indefinitely because it's only Northern Ireland that's feeling the absolute uh, worst of this. I think in that committee meeting that you described, I can't remember whether it was the Secretary of State himself or, or Connor Burns, um, the Minister of State, said, was it over 200 companies had stopped yeah, yeah. shipping to Northern Ireland? We've heard a lot of like, arch stuff from the Protocol's fans about the cost of living crisis and how much more pertinent the cost of living crisis is, whereas the Protocol's this sort of ethereal constitutional thing will no, actually, it's not because, I mean, anybody with any kind of basic economic knowledge would know that if you stop goods reaching Northern Ireland and uh, you demand that, that, that the, the supply chains uh, readjust, that it's going to uh, end up costing people money and it's going to end up um, heaping more uh, uh, price rises on them at a time when the cost of living is going up so uh, vertiginously anyway and I mean I, I think the the economist um, Esmond Burney confirmed that in an article in the newsletter the other day. You do look at Twitter and, and, and social media and despair at the economic literacy of people you know if if you're increasing the cost of transportation of goods to destination prices will go up. If you reduce consumer choice it means there's less competition. If there's less competition prices will go up. You know it, it, it's not that hard to work out that the protocol is adding cost to people in Northern Ireland uh, as consumers and as small businesses. It's just not that hard. But people seem to be in denial and just say, yes, Brexit is all the DUP's fault, which seems to be some sort of 
argument that apparently trumps everything and means that, uh, oh, and now, of course, it's only the cost of living that is causing prices to go up. Well, no, the increase in inflation is obviously is creating increased costs. But on top of the cost of living crisis for the rest of the UK, we've got the added costs of the protocol. So it's going to be marginally worse here than it is in the rest of the UK. I just don't see why people can't see that. Yes, and our, our nearest market as well is um, is Great Britain, um, because you know the, the Republic of Ireland doesn't produce very much. Most of its goods come in either from Britain or from from Europe. So yeah. we're extending the supply chains as well as um, adjusting them, and that uh, at the time when fuel costs are going up and everything yeah. else. So as an effect, which is added cost. They are, well, we'll get it all from Europe. Well, how do you get it from Europe? It's pretty basic. And I mean, if you want to look at the Republic of Ireland, the cost of goods in the Republic of Ireland is higher in Northern than it is in Northern Ireland. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've added so, economic numbskulls to my list of people that I block uh, frequently on, on, on Twitter. I, I, I have these blocking sessions and I think it's the best. Thing. It's very therapeutic, I have to say. And then we had a few weeks there of, of, of frenzied activity at Stormont as they tried to do all the work that they didn't do for the previous two years. They produced a few bills here and there that they all held as great work. Don't know why it took them so long if they could do it in six weeks. Um, you know, it seems to be a bit odd that, you know, you, sp- you, you spend forever getting to that point and all of a sudden in six weeks you can do so much. I'm not sure why we need so many of the um, uh, blessed MLAs or why indeed uh, they need to be employed at such a full-time basis when quite clearly uh, we could just employ them a few weeks a year and that'd be it um so uh, during which they could frenziedly copy each other's homework and exactly and vote for nice things uh, because it's very important to vote for nice things we all like nice things we we like nice things we do we like to vote for nice things that everybody likes and that everybody thinks is a good idea um whether it's actually good law um, whether it doesn't create problems down the line or whether it doesn't run roughshod over um, basic freedoms, uh, that doesn't seem to matter. Uh, it's just very important to vote for nice things. Yeah, and we got a, a climate change bill, I believe, Yep. That, um, sort of extends our share of net zero in the United Kingdom far beyond uh, what we should actually be contributing. And... Um, you know, a, a, a very rushed through integrated education bill. And I'm, I'm quite... Um, which which creates inequality in... Which creates greater inequality in the education system. Yeah. Um, but it's okay for the middle classes and the nice people, so that's okay. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm very um, positive toward the idea of people being educated together, but um, you've got to think about all the repercussions oh. of, uh, of the... There, there's there's integrated education and then there's the integrated education sector. If people believed in integrated education, there would be one education system. We've got five. Yeah, and the, the, there's no uh, suggestion that, for example, the Irish medium uh, sector, which has just come off age really in the last few years, should be, for example, edged out. It's presented as this wonderful progressive thing, but um, it, it's, uh, if anything, the most segregated sector of all. Well, indeed. It's a nice thing to have. So we like nice things. We, we've established we like nice things. Uh, which brings us to the election, where I'm sure we'll be offered 
in the election literature of all the all the uh, parties uh, every nice thing um, that they've ever done for us. Honestly, I can't think of much that we've gained in the past 20 years of a Stormont executive, let alone the past two years of this one. It's delivered absolutely nothing at all. And, you know, we're about to, I suppose, receive delivery of these leaflets. Um, I'm just grateful that I haven't had anything in the door yet. But, you know, again, it'll just be a wish list of sort of aspirational things that we all agree are good anyway. You know, more more jobs, better education, yeah. uh, better health service. Who's going to disagree with that? But how are you going to do any of these things? Because you've not. If, if, if I had the time, I'd actually like to do a spreadsheet and take all the election literature and work out who's offering me the most jobs, the best jobs, the bigger house and the lower taxes. You know, I think that's what we all want to know, isn't it? You know, given that they're all going to tell us much the same in terms of the day-to-day stuff, because there isn't much else, you know, there's only a few things they can say. And all of them being an executive all can claim uh, the property of the good things. So uh, we'll be told all the good things that they all have agreed to in the executive. Then we come to the election. I, I suppose this time round, would be fair to say there's kind of three elections this time. Mm. Um, there'll be the unionist election, the uh, nationalist republican election, and then there'll be um, a sort of in-betweeny election about the alliance uh, and the unionist nationalist vote either side of of that either side and perhaps within the alliance party so maybe we start with the the unionist parties well maybe we start uh, on just by thinking about what 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 might be the final tally of seats uh, and then we can come back to why we maybe think of those numbers it would be reasonable to suggest Sinn Féin might have the greater number of seats um it's certainly uh, yeah I mean, I, I certainly I think it's almost a foregone conclusion, not exact, not quite a foregone conclusion that Sinn Féin will have the most first preference vote. Um, whether that gains them the most seats sort of depends on the vagaries of the single transferable vote. I don't think there'll be much in it. What are, what are they looking at in that case? Maybe to maintain 26 or 27, perhaps. It becomes exceptionally difficult to to predict exactly where, where the seats are going to go or, or how many seats that the parties are going to have. I, I think the DUP and Sinn Féin will be close, but Sinn Féin may just edge yeah. it. You're looking at, in my opinion, the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP. I think the SDLP, are, are they on 12 at the moment? Yeah, yeah I think so. Just yeah. Behind that. Again, I think they'll be within that region. I think they'll do quite well to hold on to all of those seats, both of those parties, but Say if the if the SDLP have twelve or thirteen, they'll probably be pretty pleased with that. If the Ulster Unionists, I think they'll be doing well to hold on to the ten seats. Be perfectly yeah. honest, and you know you may be looking at Alliance picking up one or two seats and, and coming up to that kind of level that the SDLP and the UUP are at at the moment. Normally, in in this this sort of discussion would open up probably with a look at opinion polls, but all we've got in Northern Ireland at, at this point is the Belfast Telegraph loose talk. And one of the things that wasn't stated in the paper from what I could see or find, and I haven't found anyone who can tell me about the undecided voters that might've come in. The, the non-vote, I don't think online polls would turn up with a non-voter. Why would you turn up, do an online poll to say I'm not voting? Maybe you would, but I-, I Yeah, well, the, the, the lucid talk, 
Cole, as we've kind of discussed in the past, it's a self-selecting whatever. So, I mean, yes, the, the idea that somebody's going to join that panel in order to, you know, express their complete lack of feeling about which party they might vote Yeah, but you might, you might come in and, and accept that it is undecided because there are a lot more questions than just who you're going to vote for there. There were... There was questions around issues for the for the for the election and that, but but the thing that struck me was they didn't have the undecideds in this election. I think particularly within unionism, I don't know what you've been picking up and around about the place, but my sense is that people at this point in time, an awful lot of a, a very large section of the unionist population, um, are uncertain and they will decide exactly how they're going to vote when they walk into the voting booth and their decision yeah. will be made. I mean, I suppose the key with that is that although the union, um, insofar as the sort of formal fact of the union isn't under any particular threat, unionism is fairly demoralised because principally, I would argue, of the Northern Ireland Protocol and, you know, sort of various failures in the lead up to that protocol, the kind of failure to... Um, influence the, the Conservative government yeah. in, in a way that would have avoided that and other failures that have sort of marked the last sort of five, six years of politics um, and, and even before that. So people are looking around and kind of shopping around for their next party, but I don't think they've decided as yet because no. there's just, that there, there is a lack of a compelling offer out there. Yeah, um, I don't think that party's there yet, Owen. I, th- no. I think that uh, p- people are looking for something. Uh, I think in this particular election, they will vote you know, on, along a series of, of points. That that poll had undecided. Unionism is undecided. I don't think we really know, particularly between the DUP and TUV, how those votes are going to drop at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So that could leave the DUP much closer to Sinn Féin than they, they currently looked in that poll. And we don't know because we don't have all the facts from that poll available to us. That's, that's one thing. Then it comes to, to that uncertainty in the US vote and what, what we're being offered. Well, if you go on principle then and, and, and you want to protest, which I think is where the DUP got their vote, the Ulster Unionists in their criticism of the DUP failing unionism is the fact that the only reason the DUP are there is because the Ulster Unionists failed unionism before them. They're the latest in a long line. So do you then look at, if nothing else, at least Jim Allister's a man of principle and you can respect the man for what he is? You might be a bit wary about the party at the moment because you don't really know the other candidates. You don't know where that's going. But Fresh Faces, principle leader, has spoken out and probably says the things you want to hear Maybe not in the way you want to hear them, but he, you know, he will. He's a bit like Bob McCartney. You know, he's the man you all like, you like to listen to, but you won't necessarily vote for. So, but maybe this is a, a Jim and the TUV's moment where people will just swallow and vote in both uh, protest, but also because they think if there's going to be talks about the future of the union, Jim Allister is probably better than the rest. Yeah, I mean, I think he's certainly produced the most consistent critique of uh, the protocol and all the issues around it. And people will have noticed that they may have disagreements um, with him over social issues or other kinds of things. But that hasn't really been to the fore over the past few years. So if you're looking at the protocol as your kind of driver, as as the main um, 
the main issue in this election, you're certainly going to consider him. And then it depends really how that uh, how that gloss or that impression then feeds out to the other candidates. Do you do you decide that because they can't all be Jim Allister that the TUV isn't for you, or do you assume that? By voting for the TUV, you're sort of amplifying that voice, that voice, yeah. and um, therefore amplifying amplifying that coherent critique of of the protocol. However, sort of uncompromising it might be, or maybe you would sort of think, well, you know, he, he's diagnosed all the problems, but that's not going to get us out of the yeah, situation yeah. that that we're in, and that might be a fair criticism, but certainly. If you've been following this sort of saga as it's unfolded, you're perhaps going to have thought that at every stage he's diagnosed what's going on or or has critiqued what's going on in the most yeah. accurate way. Go over to the DUP then. I think of all the of all the political leaders, actually, just the moment, Jeffrey Donaldson has the greatest experience at just about every level of government there is. He is probably the most accomplished politician amongst the set of leaders that there are there. That said, the downside is perhaps that if you look at the past 20 years, Jeffrey has been a presence in about every failed negotiation there's been. And you know, there, there hasn't been a room that the negotiation team has walked into that of which he's been a part, that unionism hasn't been a little bit weaker when they walk out. He's an experienced politician. He's a plausible politician. He's not off-putting to people who find the sort of DUP's evangelicalism in the past and and that kind of um, party of protest type of label intimidating. But that said, he has been in and around a lot of failures of the party over the years, whether that's leading the group in Westminster that failed to uh, make an impression during the Brexit negotiations and the negotiations of the protocol, whether it's his sort of involvement and legacy and the fact that we've seen that kind of push to prosecute uh, people from the armed forces and, and not uh, not a similar thing in, in terms of uh, Republicans. The, the Stormont House Agreement, as I think you mentioned, the, the new decade, new approach, he's not been far, he's either been very intimately involved or not far away from all of these things but again we 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 maybe sort of overestimate sometimes how closely people look into these things before they go and and and, and put their one two three on the ballot paper as it will be this time um so it will be the impression that they they get of of the candidates or the party leaders that will guide them most of all um you know i i think when he initially came in, uh, Jeffrey seemed to garner sort of quite positive reviews from the public or, or quite positive polling results from the public and that's fallen away. So we'll just have to... Just have to wait and see. The delivery factor is a key. I think at this point... difficult to ignore. It, you, yeah. can, you can kind of... Um, you can not follow politics very, very closely and you can note the fact that not much has been achieved and he's, yeah. he's been... Been yeah, there, uh, there yeah. for for many years. So I think I think there's a doubt. I think that's a doubt uh, a factor, isn't it? Uh, uh, and then we've got the Austrianists and Doug and his his new 
candidates. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say, really. I don't see political leadership qualities there mm. um, that suggest there's a coherence that will take us anywhere at the end of the day. Um, and that might, you know, and that does come back, lack of experience, lack of political weight, uh, which I think got him into the Twitter mess. And I don't think it, uh, you know, I think those characteristics, I didn't really look at what he said on Twitter so much, but you know, that was going to happen. You could see it was going to happen at some point. And uh, yeah, I don't think he's changed in any way after that. You know, it's very much, he's, he's centering everything on himself, but I don't think that presents an attractive character uh, as a political leader that, that really will rope it in. That yeah. might not be the point of, 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 of uh, the Australians this time around. Maybe it's just that they're not the DUP and they're, they're painting this, the, the, the other parties into a loyalist corner. But a lot of those people at the rallies, particularly the indoor ones, they're very normal, average, run-of-the-mill unionists who are just fed up. Well, I mean, I, I think that Doug Beattie's trying hard to make a good job of, of the leadership. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with the kind of broad strategy that unionism should um, fight for those alliance folks and should try and incorporate a kind of a more liberal strand to, in order to sort of extend its reach and, and reach um, places that the more traditional unionists, unionism has occasionally not reached. But again, I, you know, I, 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 I do have to take your point on, on the protest thing and I, and I find the Ulster unionist message beyond that they want to be a bit nicer, beyond that they see themselves as progressive, to be rather incoherent. And the, the decision to pull out of the protest was kind of just the latest element of that. I would, I, I, I would say that there's an argument to be made that the image that they're trying to project maybe didn't fit with the protests, that that was a decision that Doug might have taken and he could have made that argument. But he didn't have to articulate it in, in the way that he's done. And, and I just have this, this kind of apprehension that he's made people who were genuinely very worried, genuinely appalled by the sea border, genuinely angry, feel that um, he's belittling uh, what they're saying or, or even accusing them of fomenting violence. And that's well, just, I, that's I, just a massive, whatever you think of the, the actual decision behind it, that's a massive communications failure at this point of an election campaign. I mean, these rallies aren't for me, maybe because I agree with what's been said anyway, and therefore I don't see the need to go and stand in the cold street. But as you say, in terms of harnessing anger, I can't think of a better way than to actually organise a peaceful gathering of people, uh, to organise them, to move them as one body. And you're channeling that anger in, in, in street demonstrations. What would be the alternative to protest? You know, coffee mornings with tray bakes. If that anger is out there. We either harness it in peaceful protest or you don't. And that anger finds other well, ways in other channels. It, it could easily spill into violence. And I do yeah. think the um, reaction from unionism and loyalism to the protocol, because it's so constitutionally serious, it's actually been quite moderate and uh, proportionate, yeah. actually. 
given that the anger is there and that it could spill over, you've got to give people some yeah. way of, of channeling it and the protests and the street protests, whether you like their content or not, whether their style is to your uh, liking, whether you agree with the, the involvement of, of marching bands. It's still an outlet for people who are feeling frustrated, who feel yeah. a lack of power, who feel a lack of kind of agency over what's happening to them. And, and they've done something, they've done something thinking. by turning up at that rally and shown people how how much they disagree with it. Well, you know, and that I, is a good thing. I, I read an article on the, on the website on her this morning, and it was completely not about Northern Ireland at all, but it was about um, extremism and what drives people into extremism. And the way that this expert described it was it's people feeling powerless and that drives them into some form of extremism. It could be any form of extremism yeah, yeah. and they're more looking for an outlet uh, rather, rather than anything else. I mean, if, if you take that as the, the driver of extremism is, is powerlessness, you can't leave people feeling powerless and hope that it'll just go away. You've got to give them some sort of purpose, some sort of idea that they're achieving something and making their voices heard. I think and making your voice heard, you have to make your you make your voice heard in a way and criticizing people wanting to make their first voices heard in a democracy is fundamentally wrong. And, and linking them and linking them to incidents that don't have any sort of anything to um, do with the protocol at all. No, no. I mean that these the, 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 there hasn't been any violence as far as I know at no, any of these no, protests. No, no, not so and then on, on the national side, I suppose we are, we have to look at at uh, SLP and, and and Sinn Fein. SLP, Colm Eastwood. I don't know that he's done enough to uh, distinguish himself from Sinn Fein. That it makes much difference. You know, to to drive votes away from Sinn Fein. I think on, on the eastern side of Northern Ireland, there seem to be some youngish, reasonably professional candidates that might be able to pull in or pull back, shall we say, uh, some soft nationalist votes from Alliance Party um, that would allow them to, you know, uh, I think Strangford, there's an almost seat, isn't there? There's been an almost seat for the SDLP for years. Um, and that guy, Conor Euston, might just manage to pull enough alliance votes, nationalist alliance votes, uh, in to, to tip himself over the line this time, maybe. Don't know who that would be expensive, but he might just be able to manage that. Um, but elsewhere, I think you know, SDLP would be happy, I guess, if it, it was able to get an extra seat maybe in, in, uh, in Derry, uh, 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 you know, building on that Westminster vote that so shocked Sinn Féin. That's probably what the SDLP would like. If they stood still, they'd be happy. If they took an extra couple of seats, they would be delighted. Yeah, well, yeah, but listening to you speak, I mean, it strikes me that on the nationalist side of things, you've got two parties who are des desperate to present themselves as new and fresh and exciting, but they're just... Um, old. They're preaching off the same well over a century year old uh, sheet, you know, yeah. atavist, atavistic uh, Irish nationalist hymn sheet. And you talk about some of the, the SDLP's uh, sort of young professional candidates and and fair enough, but some of them aren't much better with, in, yeah, in, in true, of, true. you know, the kind of hostility that they've shown to, to unionism over the past uh, five years, the kind of yeah, dismissiveness. True. Uh, with which they've they've treated any kind of uh, case in terms of remaining part of the United Kingdom, their their myopic obsession 
with a so-called New Ireland, which is the same as the the, the old Ireland, the old Ireland, and is uh, is based on. Uh, has the SLP set up a new commission or something? Uh, blah blah, drawing on the same old people or the same sources as everybody else's in this uh-huh. sudden you know United Ireland's round the corner, which it isn't. Just anyway, and then the Shinners. I think you know, as you say, it's the same old stuff. Their election line is going to be quite clearly uh, vote for us, and and you'll get a you'll get a nationalist first minister. And if you don't, then we'll be showing those unions up for the bigots that they are. Yeah, well, that's certainly going to be the subtext. And I mean, they kicked their campaign off with this great sort of United Ireland rally. Yeah. Um, at the Europa Hotel, so I mean, they're not really going to any great trouble to hide the triumphalist um, no. that they're going to take. That's probably actually going to resonate with the nationalist voters after five, yeah. six years of being fed this really divisive stuff about how, uh, you know, unreasonable unionists are being, how they wanted a hard border on the island of Ireland, and how now they're getting instead this uh, this border in the Irish Sea and slap it up them. That's the atmosphere in which this uh, election's yeah. taking place. So I don't particularly see it being... A clean campaign, a good campaign, or a campaign that will bring people together. It will be bitter, it will be divisive, and it will probably pander to the very lowest denominator. And then uh, we've got the alliance. They would obviously hope to increase their first preferences. Again, I think the big question is, can they increase them enough uh, in certain areas to hang in there as transfers start kicking in? But also, to what extent can... The unionists really take a unionist alliance person back into that sort of we're all a progressive unionist party vote for us instead of alliance. Although again, the Ulster unionist party aren't pitching a clear place between them and alliance. So if you were an alliance inclined voter, why not just vote, vote alliance anyway? I'm confused about BD's shift to that middle bit because I don't see how it works. Uh, I think on the on. Let's look at the the nationals because I think Alliance has gained on a, on a from a, a middle class nationalist vote uh, substantially. Um, I think they've pitched that very clearly for transfers as well. But again, I'll come back to this. You know, there are now a few candidates out there that I think may well hold their vote and maybe draw back in. So I'm not. I know everybody's saying the Alliance is going to do really, really well. I'm not sure they'll do much more than two, maybe three seats at your best in terms of pulling in, because I think they're being pulled now from two sides. And I'm not sure that they present something that is particularly new any longer either. No, Alliance have been perceived as being relatively successful over recent years and you've actually seen the SDLP and, and the Ulster Unions to an extent I suppose trying to um, borrow elements of that playbook um, and you know I'm, I'm skeptical as to whether they'll really make any inroads into that alliance vote particularly but it may be enough to, to stop alliance fr- uh, from expanding appreciably either or in the way that they that they would expect to um, sort of talking about maybe being the third biggest party or whatever else. And I also think that in terms of, yes, they may get enough first preference votes to kind of get them in, in the running, but they've also 
become that bit more abrasive and that bit more off-putting in terms of transfers. And if you're a unionist and you've been watching what they've been doing and, and sort of lacerating the unionist parties and insisting on rigorous implementation of the protocol and then sort of ricocheting a bit from that uh, in, in the last while once they realise that they're going to have to go to people who aren't necessarily um, particularly positively inclined toward the protocol and ask them for transfer votes, then they've started talking about mitigation and all that. Yeah. So, you know, again, if you've been if you've been paying close attention, listen to what Alliance have said, listen to the tone, the sneering, nasty tone that they adopt in a lot of uh, situations. I don't think you would touch them with a barge pole if you're, you know, serious about your your unionism. But I mean, then again. Yeah. So I think I think it's almost easier, isn't it, to sort of suggest how first preferences might land in terms of the broad drop. But that isn't seats in this STV election. I think that's why it's going to be, you know, that first vote is going to be interesting, but it's going to be the transfers where the election battle is going to be held. So maybe come back at the end of the month, just before the election and uh, have something more on how how we've managed to survive a whole um, almost six weeks of uh, a Northern Ireland election campaign. What next? (laughs) What next? All right. uh, See you soon. Okay, David. Thank you. Bye.